ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And that is who do you trust to deliver that strong economy which your essential services rely on? Who do you trust to deliver the strong economy and the budget management that these services can be funded? That the business that you work for will be there in three years, in five years, in ten years. Look, I think you probably know who that is, talking about the economy, talking about trust. And it worked too. This is Scott Morrison announcing the date of the 2019 election, which he went on to win. We'll come back to trust, to trust and economics later in the show. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. As well as trust, we'll also hear about something that makes Australia different. It's a particular behaviour that we do more than most other countries. Let's start with the job market. Unemployment has risen just a little. We lost a bit under 15,000 jobs in July, and the unemployment rate has crept up to 3.7%. Now, there's a couple of things to say about that. Firstly, it's still a very low number by historical standards. Secondly, we've been here before with this little jump up to 3.7%. It happened in January and again in April, and both times it went back down again. But there's an increasing perception that the labour market might be at a turning point, something that the RBA board noted in its minutes at the beginning of the month. It's getting less tight. Stephen Wu is an economist with the Commonwealth Bank, and he joins me now. Stephen, as low as it is you think that the unemployment rate might still be overstating the tightness of the market. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. So the unemployment rate, uh, although it did tick up to 3.7% in July, is still near 50-year lows. But we do think that the unemployment rate is just a single measure of the labour market. And if you look at a wider variety of different labour market indicators, you are seeing deterioration having occurred since around late last year. And that suggests to us that there is more spare capacity available than what is implied by the very low unemployment rate. All right. Well, let's talk about what that is, because part of it is something called underemployment. Now, regular listeners to this show will have heard us talking about it before, but just briefly remind us of what this is. Yep. So uh, the underemployment rate essentially is looking at those people who are currently employed, but would like to and are also available to work more hours. So if you think about um, spare capacity in the labor market, that can be sort of through um, headcount or it can also be through hours worked. And so we think um, we're seeing some of that adjustment happen through the hours work channel where we are seeing more people actually prefer to work more hours and therefore actually adding to labour supply. So it's it's worth saying uh, at this point that underemployment, it, it's never, there's, there's never none of it. There's always some of it. But you're, you're pointing out that essentially underemployment has has gone up since, well, over the last, really over almost the, uh, the last year. Yeah, that's right. So while over the past year or so, we've seen unemployment remain around sort of at 35 or 3.6% mark, uh, the underemployment rate has actually increased. So it troughed at 5.8%, but it's now risen by 0.6 percentage points to be 6.4%. 
So we are seeing that increase uh, more quickly uh, than the unemployment rate has done over the past year or so. And you, you've touched on this, but more people want more people want more work than there is, but this hasn't happened despite more hours being worked per employee. Yeah, so what we've seen actually over, say, the past year is that hours worked in aggregate has increased by a bit more than 5% over the year, whereas employment has actually risen by just 2.8%. So if you look at that in terms of average hours worked, it's actually increased. So despite the fact that people are actually working uh, more hours on average, there's also more people that are desiring to work even more hours. So we think um, that that's actually reflecting uh, some of the uh, sort of concerns that households have, primarily around that cost of living pressure that we've heard a lot about over the past year or so. Yeah, so higher inflation, rising rents, rising mortgage payments, all of that probably feeding in. And you, you, you noted childcare as well. Yes, right. So uh, it's well known that uh, when you have cheaper childcare, that does increase participation and also employment outcomes of primary carers, and they are typically uh, tend to be females. So with the uh, recent uh, expansion and increase in the childcare subsidy, you could be you could sort of expect to see uh, that have the same impact as well in terms of raising participation, uh, and it's going to be again adding to labour supply and helping to meet um, the labour demand that's still there in the economy. Now, this isn't, it never is, is it? This is not evenly distributed. I think there's there's uh, more underemployment in, in certain cohorts. Yeah, that's right. So when we look sort of uh, at the, the data by the different cohorts, what we do see is a bit of a difference um, by, by that. So for instance, um, for part-time workers, younger, younger males, sorry, those between 15 and 24 uh, are actually increasingly wanting to work more hours. That's back to where it was before the pandemic. Uh, and for, for full-time workers, primarily for females, they're also desiring to work more hours as well. So we are seeing uh, some differences by cohorts. Uh, and so, you know, we're not seeing uh, sort of a, a broad-based um, sort of picture across the entire labour market. No, but it, it does add up to additional labour supply. So we, we, we've kind of unpacked it now. Underemployment's up a shade. Uh, what what do the other labour market indicators show? Yeah, so uh, the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate, again, are just uh, sort of just some measures of the labour market. There are many other ones. So, for instance, you can look at, say, uh, indicators of labour demand. So, job vacancies and job advertisements, they're down, you know, between 10 to 20% from their peaks uh, from, from last year. You can look at the various surveys um, of uh, employment and unemployment. So there's both business and consumer surveys that cover this. They've been deteriorating again uh, for the past sort of six to 12 months. They're back to where they were in 2019. You can look as well at people who are holding multiple jobs. That's also at record highs. So uh, just over 6.5% of employees actually hold more than one job. Uh, so there's many different indicators, uh, which makes it kind of challenging as well to really discern what's going on in the labour market. But typically what we've seen is that the unemployment rate has been in the past a good summary measure of this. Mm. But I mean, with all of those sort of balls in the air, a lot, well, a lot of moving parts anyway, Stephen, what are, you, what are you doing with them? Because for the rest of us who are non-economists, it's much easier if you can just show us a number. Yeah, that's right. So, so one thing that I've done is sort of taken all these various indicators 
and combine them into a single labor market indicator. So I use a bit of uh, uh, sort of analysis to do this, uh, but the, the crux of that essentially is you can distill uh, the sort of the common signal across all these different indicators and come up with a single uh, measure. So this has been work that's done uh, in the past by the RBA and by Treasury as well. So it's nothing new, but it is sort of looking at sort of more recently what we are seeing occur in those various labor market indicators. So uh, what my indicator suggests is that firstly, the unemployment rate has been a very good proxy of overall labor market slack over the past you know, decade or two decades. Uh, so that's sort of comforting. Um, but what we have seen more recently actually is a divergence between um, my labor market indicator and the unemployment rate. So our, our indicator suggests that uh, we have seen a loosening in the labor market occur from around October last year. In contrast, the unemployment rate has been st almost steady over that period. And this does make sense when we think about, you know, uh, an easing in uh, labor demand. We think about the deterioration in survey measures. Think about as well the uptick in youth unemployment. All these other indicators uh, really are pointing to the labor market loosening, uh, but the unemployment rate so far has been uh, sort of fairly steady, albeit as, mm. as we mentioned earlier, it did tick up a little bit in July to 3.7%. So it's only when you kind of add them up and get the index, sort of step back a bit and get a kind of more of a bird's eye view, that you can see that in fact it's the labor market's been loosening, you said since October last year, which is 10 months ago. Yeah, that's right. So it has been a while, but it has been a fairly modest sort of loosening. Uh, we know that labor demand has actually been been fairly solid, actually. Uh, what we think is well part of that can, can be reflecting what's known as labor hoarding. So we know over the pandemic, businesses uh, had a lot of trouble sort of um, getting workers. And maybe as a result of that, they're a bit more hesitant in terms of shifting headcount. Uh, when we do see labor market, uh, when we do see business conditions weaken, so there could be a bit of a lag between mm. uh, when we see labor market, uh, when we see sorry, uh, business conditions weaken before that, that then fully translates across to labor market conditions. All right, what is it likely to mean going forward? Yeah, so I think the first thing to note here is that it means wages growth won't be as strong uh, as suggested by the unemployment rate. So, you know, the unemployment rates near 50-year lows, um, but we haven't really seen that pickup in wages growth that you might have expected. So, for context, you know, the trend unemployment rate is 3.6%, but wages growth over the past year to the June quarter is also just 3.6%. So, that actually hasn't been as high as in many other economies and certainly hasn't been as high as many people were expecting it to be given how low the unemployment rate is. Uh, now, one implication of that also is that inflation can also fall faster than what we could expect from other economies or also from what you know policymakers are expecting because we're not seeing that wage increase be a key factor in terms of the inflation uh, picture. Uh, but still, we, we do expect uh, the unemployment rate to lift um, over the rest of this year and into next year. And in fact, we do expect a faster increase than the RBA expects so we see the unemployment rate at 4.2% by the end of this year. And in contrast, the RBA expects just 3.9%. Um, but we still ultimately think that the RBA have delivered a lot of tightening in a very short space of time. Uh, interest rates are clearly restrictive right now. And so we think 
uh, the, the economy uh, will need some rate cuts over 2024 in order to keep it on that even keel the RBA desires. That's really interesting. Very thoughtful analysis, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. Thanks for having me, Richard. Stephen Wu is at the Commonwealth Bank. And this is The Money with me, Richard Aidey. Now to the Australia being a bit unusual story. When you do your tax, do you do it yourself or are you like me and use a tax agent? Those who do that are in a comfortable majority. About two-thirds of taxpayers spend, well, hundreds of dollars each getting someone else to do their tax. And that's despite it being entirely possible to use the online My Tax system, which is free. Lizzie Morton lectures in taxation at RMIT University. She wanted to get an idea of why this is happening. And I should say that what you're about to hear isn't professional advice, it's just a conversation. Lizzie, welcome. I reckon some people listening now will remember when you got a tax pack, which was a lot of paper from the newsagent or post office. We still do have those paper-based forms, but they're not very common uh, around the place at the moment. Most people, if they doing their tax return themselves are going to use the My Tax portal. So this is where you log on. So it's an online system. You're not downloading any software, but you're hopping on your computer or your device. You're you're logging in uh, to the system and completing it online. Um, and this is something you can do anytime. So it's available 24-7. There's security embedded within the system. So taxpayers' data is protected. Um, and it's available for wage earners and individual taxpayers. They can be carrying out some business operations. So they could be a sole trader on that. And generally using this system, it tends to be a faster return. Uh, so if you're in a position where you've got a tax refund, you generally can get that within 14 days compared to around 50 days for, for paper-based lodgements um, of their tax return. It also has the benefit of pre-filled data. Often your wage information will already be available in there if you've got interest as well from bank accounts or even dividends uh, can already be uh, in there ready to be reviewed and checked by the taxpayer. Mm. Um, but it does essentially a fair bit of that kind of initial collection for you. Certainly both of my kids who were both young adults and neither had had much exposure to the tax system were able to use it and, and they got their returns fairly quickly. But I'm imagining... There's going to be some people listening now who will be thinking, well, hang on, they're young people. Uh, young people are good at technology. How easy is this thing to use? Yeah, look, we've um, undertaken a survey of those who actually use the system and, and our research indicates that generally most people who use the system, they see it as being easy to understand, generally accurate, and so they agree that they would keep using it in the future. We did have a small amount of responses where users did feel a little bit more uncomfortable, um, and this is often around uncomfortable using a computer um, or maybe uncomfortable understanding the tax law. So those particular taxpayers were less likely to use the, the MyTax system in the future. So how, how many of us are, are doing this, jumping on this online portal and doing it that way? Slightly less than 36% of taxpayers in Australia using MyTax. Um, this can be compared with a, a much larger proportion of 64% um, still using tax agents to lodge their tax returns. It's more or less a third to two-thirds, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. So there's still a strong base for for tax agents to be relied on. And this is not really that surprising. While we weren't surveying those who use a tax agent, we can look at various factors such as the complexity of the tax system. Whilst it may be simple to use my tax and do your own tax return, if if you're fairly straightforward, so you might only have a part-time job or you might have a little bit of interest, so it's really kind of straightforward to collect that information and submit it, the more complex your affairs become, obviously, the more challenging to to compile and, and do that lodgement work. And particularly when we get into the deductions as well, mm. um, not everyone may be aware or understand the ability to claim certain things or the ability not to claim certain things. So some people may just simply find it too hard. Maybe they can't be bothered. They don't want to have to have the hassle to actually do it or they might be too time poor. And so there may be a multitude of reasons, mm. but but certainly the complexity is a big factor that can be a, a quite a, a big barrier and to continue relying on tax agents or, or, you know, the complexity of their own tax affairs are beyond simple. You'd have to say it's a pretty slow, pretty cautious adoption of my tax, isn't it? Yeah, look, it has been steadily rising, but, but you know, you look at on the face value and, and, and there's quite a large proportion still using tax agents. And, and so that's quite interesting. Uh, it's quite high compared to the OECD average. We even still have paper-based returns being used. So that's around, I think, about uh, 0.6% of Australians still actually using a paper-based return. Yeah. We do have to be mindful, though, that there can be various factors. It could be certain vulnerabilities of certain categories of taxpayers that may lead to a lot of those difficulties in, in either using my tax, so even using the internet or, mm-hmm. or a computer. Yep. Um, some yeah, some or, older people in particular are not, not comfortable with that. I'm part of the two-thirds nearly who use a tax agent. And I have to say part of why I do is that she knows my situation and she kind of knows what she's doing. And I don't feel necessarily that I do know what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tax law is not necessarily easy and it can change over time quite quickly. So so there's certainly a, a, a role for, for tax agents um, ongoing. I, I don't think they're going to disappear anytime soon. You know, we can even look at, at the changes between last year and this year. There's key changes that are probably going to mean a lot of taxpayers um, might have been getting some nice tax, retur- tax returns, but this year are less likely to because of the removal of the low in- and middle income tax offset, the changes to ho- home office, and, and those kind of changes that, that happen year to year. And if you're not on top of it, if you're not dealing with it every day, it can be a lot of work to make sure you're doing the right thing. And so taxpayers will go seek that expertise to ensure that they're not making errors yeah. or to ensure that they're maximising their return. It is trending in the direction of more of us doing it ourselves. I think back in the 80s, it was three quarters of us using uh, some kind of tax agent. Now it's it's under two thirds of us. But you have to say, this is not the rapid transformation we've seen in so many other areas. Yeah. And look, it does take time for things to change. People can be creatures of habit. As you've indicated, that that relationship with the tax agent, it can be really, really important and, and can be long lasting. And so there's certainly roles for tax agents that, that go beyond just simply complying and submitting that tax return. Does the tax office care, whether it's me or a tax agent, 
because I, I'm, I'm thinking that in the great sweep of things, and I've been very happy with my tax surgeon, I'm not complaining, but it would probably be more efficient if we could all feel confident to do it ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Look, at the end of the day, the critical thing is that taxpayers submit their tax return and, and really submit it timely. So whether you use a tax agent or my tax, um, in, in theory, shouldn't really matter. But obviously, it reflects the complexity that we we go to tax agents or that we might not feel comfortable or it's too hard, it's too much of a hassle. Um, so that signals uh, that issue that if we could simplify it, then we could automate it uh, a lot more. It, it resolves a lot of that. All right, Lizzie. Thank you very much for joining us today. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Lizzie Morton is a lecturer in taxation at RMIT University. Who do you trust? John Howard put that question to the Australian electorate in 2004. The answer turned out to be not Mark Latham. Scott Morrison repeated the trick on the day he announced the 2019 election and it worked out pretty well for him. If we ask the same question about occupations, then doctors, nurses and paramedics make up the podium. But what about economists? Peter Siminski from UTS has been looking at this. Peter, what's the answer? Well, it turns out we don't have great data on that. Uh, We know that in the UK, economists are roughly midway in surveys of how much people trust various professions. Uh, Apparently in the US, it's a lot lower than that, but I wasn't able to kind of find the primary sources for that. But we don't have um, direct data on that in Australia. But my sense is that economists probably aren't regarded all that highly. What do you think? How do you think economists are regarded? Well, you're talking to a journalist, Peter, and of course we're, we're always down towards the bottom of any, <laughs> any particular league table on that. But you've had a real think about why this must be and come up with a few reasons. What's, what's the first one? A bunch of things I've been thinking about. The, the, the first one, which is, which is quite well known now, is that the number of, of people who are actually studying economics has, has really plummeted. Uh, roughly 70% fewer people study economics in year 12 compared to the early 1990s. And similarly, at university level, the number of people who come out of university with an economic specialisation has plummeted as well. So I, I do think there's a, there's a major problem for, for the discipline and its ability to really uh, improve society when the level of economic literacy has been uh, declining uh, quite substantially and there doesn't seem to be much of a push to, to try and address that. What would you like to see? Would you like to see economics taught until the end of year 10, for example, as a compulsory core part of curriculum? I mean, I, I think at least some economics would be would be really useful for everybody. I mean, all basically all of the kind of major social issues of our time mm. uh, would benefit from people having you know, some economic literacy in order to be able to fully participate in debates, things such as housing affordability, uh, inequality, gender equity, climate change, all of these things have economic dimensions to them. Uh, so I, I'm not sure exactly what the best sort of part of the school curriculum that would fit into, but I think surely there should mm. be a place for economics for every high school student. All the quantitative scientists are agreeing. I can hear, I can hear that <laughs> now. All right. The other thing you've highlighted is the profession's diversity. Now, 
most of my job is interviewing economists, and I do interview a lot of middle-aged white guys, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Now, I bring that to the show. I'm always looking for other people. Yeah, so this is another really, really big issue. So economics is the, the discipline which uh, advises on how uh, markets should be uh, designed, how resources should be distributed, uh, and therefore it's really important to have a diverse set of population who are, who are represented in, in this discipline. But that's been going backwards in Australia again since the 1990s the concentration of economics training is becoming increasingly concentrated amongst men. Mm. Uh, so two-thirds of economics students are now men in high school, where it used to be roughly 50-50 in the early 1990s. And, and similarly, the people who are studying economics in high school are, are increasingly concentrated in rich socioeconomic status areas. Uh, so, you, so you have this sort of strange kind of... It's a narrowing, uh, isn't it? It really is. Mm. So that's an issue. We, we see it also at the, in, the, in the academic employment um, side of things as well. Economics d- departments are very aware of this. We're getting better and mm. we're, we're doing things to try and improve diversity. Um, but uh, it's kind of a hard thing to do when, you, when, when not many people actually studied it, study it in the first place. Not, not, not a diverse population study it. Something else you talk about is reflexivity. Now, this is not something we've talked about before on the program. So mm, what is it? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you talk to, to most economists and you sort of get the, the same reaction. What, what, what do you mean by <laughs> reflexivity? It's in some of the other social sciences, it's quite a kind of fundamental uh, concept for people to, to understand when, that, when they're doing social research. And basically what it means is to sort of situate yourself within the lens of the research. So, so in other words, to be really conscious of one's own background and one's own environment in shaping how you think about the world and the kinds of research questions you, 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 you look at and how you actually conduct the research. So how is your worldview impacted by your own background. I don't think we do enough of that and it's not something that it's really the economics discipline has much emphasis on. No. All right. And you also think the news media has a role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, the temptation to seek out sensationalist radical views uh, in any kind of uh, forum or any kind of uh, topic is very strong, I think, for the media. So I think that there is insufficient a desire to really identify genuine expertise by the media when they're looking for, 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 for perspectives to be, to be magnified. Just go to um, that diversity issue too, that mm. too many economists are coming from too few organisations. Is that what you think? Uh, absolutely, yes. Are there potentially conflicts of interest that are represented in the voices that, that we hear? Whilst economists work in every sector of, of society, uh, it seems to me that the voices that are kind of uh, most prominent in the, in the media from amongst economists tend to come from, from the private sector and, and from think tanks. So you have lots of people from banks, from uh, consultancies, um, from you know, other financial institutions and, and think tanks. And I don't see sort of a sufficient attempts for, for the media to be really sort of conscious about making conflicts of interest, uh, potential conflicts of, of interest apparent. Uh, some think tanks, for example, uh, have anonymous donors that they're not willing mm. to divulge. Uh, so I think that the, there's not enough actually recognition of that by the media in an attempt to inform the consumers of, of media about these potential conflicts of interest. Now, One of the other issues that you've highlighted, Peter, is what economists are interested in looking at and talking about and the way they kind of frame things. Economists are are very diverse, of course, and and a lot of these issues are kind of interconnected. But I do think that there is still... And and economists do a whole lot of research leading the way with research on inequality, for example. Mm. But sometimes I think there is still a, a tendency 
to focus too much on issues of efficiency, the size of the pie, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps not always thinking you know, too carefully or too deeply about distributional questions. We've had all sorts of debates where this has come up, things such as uh, increases to JobKeeper or, or increases to the minimum wage. Yep. Clearly, in those cases, there, there, there are going to be issues of both economic efficiency and equity. Mm. And I think it's up to us as economists to be a little bit more focused on both of these things mm. simultaneously. Peter, one of the things you do address towards the end of your piece is something I've been thinking about, which is kind of economists themselves. A non-economist could be forgiven that economists do not lack for confidence when they when they opine about various things. Yeah, that's right. Um, certainly what we, we see, I think we see in the media is a lot of that. So I think part of it is about who the media sources and who, yep. who, who, they, who they, they speak to. Um, and partly I think you know, there is sort of perhaps a, a culture of, of um, perhaps overconfidence when speaking to people outside the discipline, perhaps. Mm. Um, so genuinely, I, I, when I hear the loudest voices in economics in the Australian media, I personally just think, well, maybe we could sort of, you know, have a little bit more humility, uh, have a little bit more space for alternative perspectives, and uh, maybe that will lead to a you know, better reputation and better trust in the community. Peter, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Professor Peter Siminski's Head of the Economics Department at UTS. And that's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidy. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 